Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, it's great to be here this morning. Uh, beautiful sunshine uh, in Beijing, blue sky. We had a great time this morning, as it's already been mentioned, uh, with uh, Neil presenting uh, the topic of fear. And it's very interesting, of course, it ties in very well with this uh, message that uh, the Lord has put on my heart to share with you. And I hope that uh, as we go through these passages, you'll be able to see uh, how fear uh, has uh, impacted these passages and the people that are involved in the uh, story that we're going to read about. I'd like to just uh, start with prayer first. Father, we uh, thank you for this time to come together this morning and worship uh, to you. We ask that the, the words that uh, proceed from my mouth are a demonstration of your Spirit's power uh, and nothing from me. I ask anything that comes from my flesh uh, would not be heard, and anything that comes from your Spirit would pierce the hearts and the spirits of everyone present. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, I've been in Beijing for uh, 11 years with my wife, Tammy, and our four daughters, uh, and it's uh, amazing to see the change that we obviously see in the congregation every year, and it's always a privilege, though, to meet the incredible people uh, that come through this city. And uh, I'm always grateful for the opportunity to be here each Sunday, and then also, too, to be able to present some piece of God's Word that He's put on my heart. Today we're going to be exploring... First uh, Samuel chapter 15, which we've read some of the passages so far, and as we go through this journey, we're going to look to answer three questions that jumped out at me as I went through the text. The first question is, why God wants our heart for obedience and not sacrifices and religious observances? The second question is, why we don't obey and prefer sacrifice, and then what are the implications for this in our lives here in Beijing? And then lastly, how is Christ's Perfect obedience and sacrifice enable our heart for obedience possible and make our heart for obedience possible. Now, from a timeline perspective, for those of you that uh, maybe not as familiar with uh, the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, uh, we're in the period of a transition from uh, the period of the judges. So from the time of Moses to the time of Saul, there was a period called the time of the judges. And this is where uh, people were appointed by God to basically govern the nation of Israel, but more in the sense that they were just an intermediary for God, but basically God was directly relating to the people uh, as, and through his judges. And there was a lot of dark times during this period, uh, as a lot of the stories you read through and you read some of the histories of some of the judges, and you'd be shocked by some of it and also inspired by some of it. What we see in particular with Samuel, Samuel was considered the last judge before the transition to the first king, Saul. And the reason for that was that the people decided they no longer wanted to relate to God directly. They wanted, a, they wanted a king. They looked at all the other cultures around there, and they just decided it was going to be easier to relate to a king and have a king be over us than having to relate to God directly. And so God, in his typical way, will say, if that's what you want, then I'll give it to you. But he warned them ahead of time. And he told Samuel, tell these guys, this is what's going to happen. You're now going to be... Whatever the king says, you gotta, you're going to go with. So if the king falls, you're falling with him. If the king does good, then you'll be blessed with the king. He, but he's going to come. He's going to take a tenth of your stuff. He's going to take your sons and send them to war. He's going to take whatever he wants, and you can't cry about it. Basically, you're stuck because you asked for him. So he gives him a warning, and he says, if you don't want to be in a theocracy, you want to be in a monarchy, that's fine. Have it your way. And then history speaks over the next several hundred years about what the implications of that decision were by the people. Now, as we've talked, as I've talked previously, 
this book is inside of 66 different books of the Bible that are written by 40 different authors that are all speaking to the same story. So we don't want to miss that this story is just one story that ties into the rest of the stories of the Old and New Testament. And what's amazing about it is that God continually uses the Bible and all these things to point to the person of Jesus Christ. Either directly or indirectly, you'll see the message of Christ throughout the Scriptures. And today we'll be able to see in uh, 1 Samuel 15 how that plays out. And his purpose is always to make himself known for his glory and for our joy. Now, we're in chapter 15, basically where we come into this passage is Saul has been appointed king. Saul was not anything special except for he was apparently a bit taller than everybody else and maybe a bit more handsome. So he made for a good king, I guess, uh, from the world's perspective. Um, But he had not really done anything special except for God chose him, picked him out, anointed him, and said, Samuel, he's the guy, anoint him, and he's going to be the one. And then God poured his Holy Spirit out on him on Saul, so Saul would demonstrate that he was the chosen one by God. And he did this through prophetic utterances, through obviously battles that he went into and won. Uh, And so God appointed him and gave evidence of that through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and of course Samuel anointing him with oil to prove that. So there's no question in anyone's mind whether Saul is king or not. So we come into this passage, when we get into the first question that comes out is, God, why God wants our heart for obedience, not sacrifices and religious observances. We have to remember this seems to be counterintuitive to the culture, which is why God throws it out there. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he set himself up against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep, camel, donkey. Nothing is to be left. He was very clear. Absolutely very clear. There was no mistaking what the command from God was and what the mission was. Now, we all may have a problem with the mission because we think it sounds pretty harsh, but in the context of this passage, there was a reason why he wanted this people group eradicated. We're not going to go into today, but God had a good reason. It was justified, and Saul's job was to follow through on the mission. Now, let's jump ahead to uh, chapter, verse 7, where it says, So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good, and was, were not willing to destroy them utterly, but having everything despised and worthless that they were utterly destroyed. So he basically got rid of the bad stuff and kept the good stuff. He kept the king for leverage for some reason, and he kept all the, they kept all the good stuff, all the good sheep, all the good livestock, all the treasures. Verse 10. Okay, we'll stop there, and then I'm going to give a brief overview of the rest of the passage, and we'll come back to it a little bit later. So it says, basically in those passages, it says basically Saul partially obeyed. 
Samuel then goes and is alerted of the failing to complete the mission. So God comes to Samuel and says, hey, he didn't follow through. And guess what? I'm taking away his kingship. Samuel was absolutely distraught, which is interesting. Because Samuel basically was replaced, and his position was taken essentially by Saul, but he was distressed and spent all night basically weeping and coming to God and saying, are you sure, basically, you want to do this? Are you sure you want to take away his kingship? Then Samuel, seeing that, yes, he is, he goes and confronts Saul. Saul lies. Samuel questions and catches him in the lie, which we'll read in a minute. Saul excused and justified himself. Samuel asks another question, who made you king from the time when you were small? Saul lies again, makes more excuses. Then Samuel asks a third question. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is an iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the work of the Lord and he has rejected you from being king. Now we're going to come back to this and look at all the reasons that were going on in a minute. But I want to get to and really look at this and say, why does the Lord say that obedience is better than sacrifice? It's better than burnt offerings. Remember, the, the people at that time, they would come and they would give the burnt offerings and give the sacrifices as uh, pointing towards what they all knew would be an ultimate sacrifice at some point. And this was a remembrance. It was a chance to say, yes, we are basically submitting ourselves to you, God. This is what we recognize you, but it was, became a very religious thing, not a personal thing. It became an obligation and a law as opposed to a result of a relationship. This is not an isolated claim in the scriptures. This claim is repeated both in the Old Testament and the New Testament where the claim that obedience supersedes sacrifice and religiosity, religious obligations. So this is not an isolated passage. This is consistent throughout the Old and New Testament. Now, the word obey has a lot of probably negative thoughts in your mind, and if you're a kid, even more so. And when you were a kid, you thought of that word, and it was like a, it is a four-letter word, and it was a, a big-time four-letter word. No one likes the word obey. Now, in the Old Testament, the meaning of the word signifies to hear, to listen. It carries with it, however, the ethical significance of hearing with reverence, an obedient assent. In the New Testament, a different origin is suggested of hearing under or subordinating oneself to the person or thing. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, it did have a, a, a sense of a flavor, and basically obedience was a supreme test of faith in God and reverence for him. The Old Testament conception of obedience was vital. It was the one important relationship which must not be broken. By the way, these, this is a definition that comes from multiple different uh, uh, commentaries and dictionaries about biblical words, and so this is what I'm reading from. In the New Testament, a higher spiritual or moral relation is sustained than in the Old Testament. The importance of obedience is just as greatly emphasized. Christ himself is one great illustration of obedience, and it refers to Philippians chapter 2, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So obedience, obviously, is extremely important. So here's some other reasons why God lays it out, and there's five primary ones. The first one, it's pleasing to God because it signifies that there's a trust relationship between you and him. When we disobey, 
It's a result of a broken relationship. When we obey, that means the relationship's intact. Now, if you look back to the garden, the first instance of disobedience is Adam and Eve. And uh, I think Neil touched on this this morning uh, for a second. And the idea was, all of us think when we hear that passage that God restricted them of something. But actually, God gave them everything. He gave them everything was perfect already. Everything they could possibly ever need, want, or imagine they had. And he said, oh, by the way, don't touch that tree, the one in the middle, because you know what? If you do, you will surely die. So it was the first, I don't want to use the word test, but it was the first example of, hey, trust me. It's in your best interest to not eat of that tree. Trust me. And unfortunately, they listened to the lie. So the lie of Satan was really, really interesting because he actually said, God told you you can't eat of any of these trees. And actually, it's not what God said. So he lies even in his challenge of what God had said. And then he gets them to believe that, you know what? This God is an unwilling God to give you blessing. He's hiding true knowledge from you. He's he's hiding the ability to be God yourself by not letting you eat of that tree because if you eat that tree, you'll know everything. That was the challenge. That was the whisper. They wanted something that they thought they didn't have and God said, listen, you don't want that because that's the one thing that will make you die. Tim Keller says in one of his uh, books, he says, the ultimate lie of Satan is this. We have to pry God's blessing out of his unwilling fingers with all sorts of observations and performances. God is a policeman who gives us law because he wants to deprive and destroy our joy. See, so Satan knows when we believe this one lie, we are unable to remain in the vine. Even, if we're already, even though we're already adopted into the family and forgiven, Satan knows if we don't trust him, if we don't abide, that he can get us out of the system. He can render us useless to the body of Christ. So, for example, if I don't believe in my security, my financial security is in God, then I'm going to begin to do things that demonstrate a lack of trust in him for my security, for my standard of living. There's a potential I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to steal a little bit. I may not go steal something from a store, but I may cheat on my taxes, or I may hide business income from the government, or I may do all types of other underhanded deals, or I may bribe. There's all kinds of opportunities I have to demonstrate my lack of trust that God says, I have your your best interest at heart. I will provide for you. You do not need to take that into your own hands. And you can look back through your week, your month, your life, and I'm sure you can find examples of that in your own life just with regards to financial security alone. The other reason why obedience is important because sacrifice presupposes sin. There was no need for a sacrifice if there was no sin in the first place. So if we're obedient, there's no need for a sacrifice. That's why God is saying obedience is greater and better than sacrifices. It's also easier to burn something than it is to trust him. It's easier to bring my 10% and throw it into the, the tin than it is to believe that it's all his and I'm a steward of it. See, when we live according to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree from which Adam and Eve ate, we then begin to relate to God based on the law. Because now it's about what I'm going to do to earn my relationship with him and then to leverage him for what it is I need from him. 
because I'm going to perform on his behalf so that he will then bless me. And that's what living by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is like. And that's what a lot of us live under. And that is not a fun place to be. And we've talked about that in previous messages. Now, the other thing that God, why God prefers obedience versus sacrifice, because nothing provokes him more than setting up our wills in competition against his. Obedience basically means, obedience only occurs when you disagree with God. When you agree with him, it's not obedience. That's agreement. That's a very common mistake we make. Oh, I only disobey when I don't agree with him. Yes, you're right. Yeah, you only disobey when you... That's why it's called obedience. It means you're submitting your decision for someone else to decide. We're born into this world with a disobedience. You know, we lean towards disobedience. And that's why it's called obedience. We have to submit ourselves and trust somebody that they have my best interest at heart. Then lastly, why obedience is better than sacrifice is that the rebellion that occurred in the, this passage, in particular with Samuel and Saul, is that Saul wanted to blame the people. And Samuel was just reminding him, you know, the rebellion here is not the people against you, King Saul, and what they did. The rebellion is you against God. Because you're the one that set up a sacrifice to yourself. You're the one that allowed them to do that without taking measures to make sure they didn't do that. So don't, don't try to change what the story is here. So the idea of law, which is what we prefer to relate to God in, is because we think it's easier. It's easier to give 10% than to let, be a steward. It's easier for me to go to church, go to Bible studies, to do these things, than be obedient to the positive commands of the scriptures that I love my neighbor. It's much easier to relate by law. I don't have to think. I can just do what the law says. I check it off a list. does not require a relationship whatsoever. God wants relationship. Law does not require it. Now, when we go into the next part of the passage, we, we see that there's this problem. We've been, because we know that now obedience is better than sacrifice, we now say, why don't we obey then? What are the factors that bend me away from that? Let's read through the, the passages on verses 10 through 23, and I want to pick apart what's going on here and for you to see the pattern that Saul demonstrates to us that we can probably see in our own lives. Starting verse 10, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret I made him king. Basically, he didn't carry out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out. Then in verse 12, he says, or in verse 13, Samuel goes to Saul, and blessed, and then Saul seems, sees him coming, and Saul has the, the boldness to walk out, and this is what he does. He walks up with his chest puffed out, and he says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Lie number one. And he actually volunteered. He didn't even get asked a question yet. He just came right out and told a flat-out lie. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? I mean, I, I really just started laughing out loud when I was reading this. I mean, if you think of the sarcasm that Samuel was just demonstrating... Think about the times your kids come up and make an excuse to you and you can ask a question. Or when you've made an excuse for something, someone turns around and asks you a question, it's like, boom. Spouses were really good at this. Right? Because we are so defensive that it doesn't take much to knock us off. But this, I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. So he, he answers his lie with a question. Then Saul said, they have brought them from the, okay, blame, brought them from the Amalekites, 
For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Yes, the best of the sheep and oxen to to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we utterly destroyed. So we partially obeyed and we brought the rest back because we want to be religious and we want to give these things to the Lord. This is the pattern of our disobedience. We self-justify the reason why we didn't do it. And we try to throw some good thing in there to demonstrate why we should be let off the hook for it. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, speak. Is it not true that though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I've brought back Agag and the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed them. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the ox and the choices of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, and then he goes and repeats the passage. Guys, this is the pattern of our lives when we are in the flesh. This is the heart problem. We lean towards ourselves and we self-justify and we excuse and we lie and we cheat and we tell partial lies and then we try to throw some kind of spiritual thing on top of something to cover up the disobedience. To say that the ends justify the means. We brought back all this stuff to sacrifice the Lord. The ends justify the means. My company made all this money, so I had to cheat to get all this money so I can give it to the church and give it to the poor. That's what he's saying. And we've done it at some scale. Anytime we've made this excuse. When we claim good intentions, it's a great, it's a, when you hear a good intention in the midst of your disobedience, you know something's wrong. And the importance of a Samuel in our lives is absolutely critical. If Samuels are not present within our lives out of love, not out of condemnation, out of fear for our, our spirits and our souls, not out of judgmentalness and pride, when they fear for us and they're there to serve us and to seek out our best interest, we need those people in our lives. This is the point of the body of Christ. That's why we can't be the ember or the coal by itself. We must be together. That's the only way we can live. We must have the Samuels in our lives. Or we'll vindicate and self-justify. Now, even in the end, you get to this idea that of repentance. So Saul is just totally busted. There's no way he can actually get out of this at this point. And so he kind of gives a little backhand. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, can you go back with me and reinstate me with everybody? Basically, I need to make sure I still look good to everybody. So he had a completely fake repentance. And how many times have you seen that? Because when I repent to you and not to God, it's not real. I'm just doing that to appease you. When I'm repenting to God, my heart is melted. I'm flat on my face. What is the difference between when Saul was confronted and when David was confronted? Think about it. Saul did not kill someone he was supposed to. David killed someone he was not supposed to kill. God cut off Saul, but God calls David a man after his own heart. What 
in the world. That's just ridiculous. This story would not sell in our culture today. Why is that? Because the heart. Saul, or David went flat on his face when Nathan revealed to him that he was the one in the story that he was telling. That he was the one that did this heinous act to his neighbor, who did not love his neighbor. Saul excused and defended and gave fake repentance. That's the difference. That's why he's a man after God's own heart, not because he did anything extraordinary, except he had a heart that was broken and contrite. And that's where God calls us. Now, the other reasons why this cycle continues in our lives is that we're idol worshipers. Every one of us obeys something or multiple things. When we disobey, it's because we're disobeying God, it's because we're obeying some other idol that we're putting our trust in for our security, our significance, our satisfaction, and our success. Because apart from Christ, we bend towards ourselves all the time. We're always going to bend towards ourselves and our protection. So if we sense obedience is not in my best interest, I'll disobey. So unless my mind is changed of what's best for me, I'm going to obey the other God, the other idol in my life. Now, this means that when we disobey, it means we don't believe God or trust God in that particular point, that particular situation. Does not mean we don't believe in him in the macro sense. It means we don't believe him in that area. Does not mean, it means we don't believe him at that time. And fortunately, because God has extended his grace, his grace is nothing we earned. It does not mean I'm cut off from him when I disobey. It means that I need to go back to him in repentance and that I've broken relationship with him and the consequences that come from that broken relationship. So if you're sitting here today and you've done something you think is unforgivable, there's some sin that you've committed that you think maybe God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself, that's a form of pride and arrogance that our sin that I've committed is better than what, Sam, uh, what David and Peter and Paul, these murderers, that Ed had mentioned last week, not Peter, but the other two guys, were murderers. In David's case, an adulterer. Why can he forgive those guys and he can't forgive you? So there's nothing that's unforgivable from God and there should be nothing that we've done that we should not be able to figure ourselves for. If we do, we're holding ourselves up to a higher standard than God does, which is crazy. So know that the forgiveness is complete and it's full and you have to forgive yourself because you have no choice because God's already forgiven you. It's actually an obedience issue to forgive yourself. No matter what it is. It doesn't mean your consequences have been eliminated, but it is forgiven. So Saul was consistent in his demonstration of the disbelief in God because he constantly referred to him as your God, Samuel. He never referred to him as his God. So Paul had a concept of God. Tim Keller talks about this idea there's a, such a thing as a concept of God without knowing the reality of God in your life. So many people sitting in this room and going to churches all over the world have a belief and a concept about God, but God's never come into their life and reworked their agenda. Most of us will say, God, come into my agenda, help me with my life because things aren't going so well right now, or they are going so well right now, but thank you for blessing me, as opposed to God slams into my life is an earthquake, absolutely rocks my world like he did to Paul, and now my agenda that used to be I'm going to eliminate the Christians from the face of the earth to what do you want me to do? Who are you? I'll do whatever you ask for me. My life is nothing. 
As Rick was saying earlier, Paul considered everything lost for the sake of Christ. That's when someone's heart is taken over, and Saul did not have that. So the last question is, if we have this problem, we have this issue of this constant vectoring towards my flesh, this heart for disobedience, how is Christ's perfect obedience and sacrifice make my obedience possible? So as I went through these the last couple of weeks, I kept, I remember when I first started reading, I was just, you know, I was ridiculing Saul for being such an idiot. And then I went back and read through a little bit more closely, and then I saw Paul's, or Saul's insecurity, and I was like, ooh, that kind of looks like me. And then I saw him excuse himself, and then I excused myself later in the day for something I did. Oh, wow, that kind of looks like me. And then I justified myself a little bit later. I live in a house with five women, so you can imagine how often I'm right, which is never. So I'm in a constant state of defending myself and self-justifying my position. So it's hopeless. So I could see the grossness of it and even justify myself in whether or not I can work the Apple TV or not because this passage shows in the depths of it this big issue what Saul was doing. I'm doing it my little issue and it's just as disgusting. It's just as simplistic because I do not have my identity in Christ in that moment. Else I would care less if someone says I can't work the remote. Why would I care? Or if one of my colleagues at work thinks I'm not a good boss, I'm not a good sales guy, I'm not a good leader. If my identity is in Christ, it's not going to concern me so much. So as I go through that, I begin to reveal in my own heart and say, wow, this problem is so deep and it's identity-based It's not about anything that I do. It's about who I am and who I can be in Christ. So when the scriptures point to the solution of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is that Jesus Christ demonstrated perfect obedience. He demonstrated that perfect obedience because his truth was clear. He wasn't confused. He knew his father was his security, was his significance, in whom he was fully satisfied He was fully man. See, we don't think Jesus was fully man. He was also fully God. But the fully man part was tempted in the way you and I are tempted. The difference is he was completely dependent upon God for every breath, every moment. He was completely dependent, which is why he became the perfect sacrifice. Not because he was morally perfect, but because he was perfectly obedient. And there's a difference. We think being morally perfect is what it means to be a good Christian. And that's rubbish. Moral perfection will not happen. But perfect obedience is enabled through what Christ did for each one of us on the cross. Doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. What it means is I now have access through the Holy Spirit to live an obedient life, abiding in the vine. You see, Satan appealed to Jesus the way he appeals to us. He goes after the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. He has the same pattern. He is not very creative in the big ideas. He's the big idea, and then he creates it tailor-made to me and my weaknesses and my flesh. He knows my pattern, and he plays to it. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Having this attitude in ourselves, which we was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What Rick was saying earlier, 
he did not apprehend what he could apprehend. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, even though he was. He chose not to take that so that we could apprehend what we do not deserve, that which we did not earn, which is his perfection imputed to us from his death and resurrection. And why did he do that? Is because Jesus had a melted heart for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was looking to us and our relationship when he went to the cross. He looked to the future. He had his eyes on his prize, which was his bride, the bride of Christ, which is us, both individually and corporately. He had that in mind. That is why he was able to self-forget. We can't self-forget. We're constantly thinking of ourselves. Jesus demonstrated self-forgetfulness at the cross. Although he was God, he chose not to take it and went up and left it all there and was separated from his father for however long that was, but it seemed like an eternity, I'm sure. He did that with us in mind. All Satan has to do is convince us of the same lie that he he convinced Adam and Eve in the garden. You can't trust him. He does not have your best interest at heart. He does not love you. That's the whisper at night, in the morning, at lunch, when you have the opportunity to obey or disobey. He just does a whisper. He doesn't need much to convince us that God does not have our best interest at heart, that we are not secure in him. He does not want us to reckon and believe true that we are seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenlies. When Jesus sat down, we sat with him 2,000 years ago. He does not want you to believe that. He does not want you to believe that you're adopted and that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He does not want you to secure yourself in the imputed righteousness of Christ and that you're a priest and you're kings. He does not want you to believe that. He does not want you to secure yourself in Christ because then he can't get us to disobey. This is why being religiously observant has no value in God's eyes. Giving up things, giving money, going to church, Bible studies, these things are much easier to do than being obedient. Remember, obedience is when you don't want to do something. When you have to trust that he has your best interest at heart. That's obedience. It's when you don't want to participate in something, but because of your relationship with God, you participate, that becomes obedience. Not because it's fun and you go do it and you're enjoying yourself. It requires that I secure myself in him, that I get my significance and my satisfaction from him. My identity is as his child. When my identity is secured in him, I'm dependent upon him his life can now flow through me. So Jesus links this love that he has for us and our love for him to obedience in John 14. Because when you love me, you obey me. And if you obey me, that means you love me. They're linked. Because the love is basically, again, a, an act of the will that says you're God and I'm not God. So I'm going to do what you asked me to do and be who I already am in you. And you're going to work through me and now I can do it because you're going to work through me. It's not me doing it. I can't even take credit for it. Brothers and sisters, we are, every single day we walk through the moment. You're going to walk out of here today and you're going to have a chance to be accused. 
you're going to have a chance to self-justify. You're going to have a chance for obedience to come upon you. And it cannot be an individual act about that. It has to be as a result of who you are in Christ and your identity and what you believe about your identity that will result in the obedience. And that's sustainable. All the rest is manufactured moralism. And the world has enough of it. What we're looking for and what God's looking for is men and women after his own heart. That the minute the light is shined of sin, of disobedience on us, we fall to our face and we don't self-justify, we don't excuse, and we repent on the spot. That's what then opens our heart to allow his spirit to work through us for real obedience to be able to come. Finish up. sitting here today and you at some point in your life believed in God and the Holy Spirit has been deposited in you but yet you feel you're in this prison of this cycle of what you see in Saul's life it simply means there's something about the gospel message the second part of the gospel that we rarely talk about the first part that your sins have been forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that gift of grace is free to all of us because of what he did on the cross. The second part is you were crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago and you no longer live. Your old man, your flesh, is, was killed then. And the new life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. You now have been raised up with him. Your spirit now is renewed. Your spirit that was dead is now alive and now can live and be who you are in him. Live out to who you already are, not try to work and do good things to become a better Christian. You are already perfect in his eyes. He just wants you to recognize that and believe that and then live up to it. It's not following a set of rules. It's a lifestyle that is transformed because your heart has been blown away by God. There's been an earthquake in your life. Your agenda has been thrown out and his agenda has now come in and your life now runs on his agenda. And that's when joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control come into your life as a result of an outpouring of his grace, not you willing yourself to do it. This is why a heart for obedience is better than sacrifice because it means I've got this with him in a moment-by-moment basis abiding in the vine. I know everyone's confused, many, or many people are confused by the abiding thing because we think there's still a checklist we have to do to learn how to abide. It's not. It's realizing you can't do anything. It's the conversation each morning I cannot do it. I need you to do it through me. I am dependent upon you. I am a dependent slave on my king to work through me. Reveal to me. Bring the Samuel to show me. And I'll, I'll, I'll turn and repent of it. I don't want my life, I don't want to be in this prison any longer. I want to live free in the obedience that you have for me. Not, I can't do something. It's complete freedom. Broken, independent, clear an identity in him and amazed by his grace. Broken, independent, clear in our identity in him and amazed by his grace. Father, I pray this morning that uh, for those of us that are here today that do not have, have never gotten to a point where the concept of God has moved to a reality of a relationship. That perhaps for years we've heard stories about God, we've listened to these messages, we've been bored at times, we've been excited at times, but something in us today is saying, 
I want you to come in and create the earthquake in my life and the, your agenda to become my agenda because of what you did for me on the cross 2,000 years ago because you have saved me, because you have forgiven me, because you are the righteous one. I am not righteous. You have done it. I have done nothing. And I give up any ideas or any thoughts that I brought anything to this relationship. I just want to be in that relationship with you. Please save me. And as you save me, Father, for those of us that have been already accepted that gift, that the second gift of the gospel is that I, my old man was crucified 2,000 years ago. It no longer lives the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God. That I can walk out of here abiding in the vine and living a new life and freedom for myself, freedom for my tendencies to want to self-justify, to defend. Father, I don't want to be the person that latches myself and secures myself to wealth and position and power and my kids and my, my image, my looks. Whatever it is, I do not want to lock myself to that. I want to be free to see me as you see me. That I can live in that complete freedom. I can live in the fact that I'm a new man, I'm a new woman in Christ. And I can walk from this day forward in the joy and the pleasure and the unbelievable uh, grace that you've poured out on me. I pray that you bring that to me. I pray on this uh, congregation that, Father, your Holy Spirit will be poured on each one of us in whatever measure of grace that we need at this moment, that you would do that. In Jesus' name we pray.